Good morning, North Hills. It's good to be with you. Uh, oh, let's not let that happen. All right. Get that to stay there. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 75 this morning. And actually, I would like to begin uh, with, with reading the psalm, and then we'll, we'll dive in. So if you would, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 75, Psalm 75. God will judge with equity to the choir master according to do not destroy a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time I appointed, at the set time I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. I say to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foamy wine well mixed and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you. We thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that um, you have given it to us. And Lord, that you have also given us your Holy Spirit. That, uh, that we might uh, not only understand it, but it might change us. Uh, Father, and that we might be able to uh, walk in, in, in this world in a way that honors and glorifies you. So, Father, as we um, dive into this text, I pray that uh, we will walk away from it uh, knowing you and trusting you more and more and more. And so, Father, I just pray that, uh, that you would, by some miracle, uh, use me as, as we uh, dive into this time. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So for those who may be joining us for the first time, uh, my name is Justin Underwood. I'm an elder here at North Hills Church. Uh, typically, we are going through a particular book, a specific book, verse by verse, and we just concluded the book of Jude. I say just, it's been a few weeks, uh, and we will soon be going into the book of Daniel, but in this uh, kind of inter- this period uh, in between each books, we are going through either a psalm or a proverb. And I had already taught a proverb previously, previously, previously this year, so I chose a psalm. And I want to confess something to you. As I was going through deciding which psalm would, uh, would I be teaching on this morning, I had about five that have really meant a lot to me in my life. But particularly, Psalm 75 has meant a great deal to me. In fact, I have found a tremendous amount of comfort uh, in this psalm, uh, particularly verses 6 and 7. So you might imagine my surprise when I began to study the text this week that I realized I had been misinterpreting the text. Uh, Not so much in its application, but more so in its interpretation. Uh, So we're going to, I'll bring that up uh, more specifically later on. Uh, But before we get into Psalm 75, I just want to remind you, uh, the book of Psalm is, it's basically broken up into an introduction, five books, and then a conclusion. And there's maybe a little debate around that, but it's my opinion that the book of Psalm 
is put in the order that it's in on purpose. That it, that it has a purpose to the order. And Psalm 75, it lives in what we would call book three. So the introduction is books, uh, chapters one and two. That, uh, the, the writer there is anonymous, but it, it points us to the fact that the, these psalms, these songs, these poems, they are meant to bless us. They are meant, us, meant to point us to God's word, to trust God and look for the Messiah. Uh, book two, you would kind of put that together in, in Psalms 3 through 41. And here you find most of David's writings. Book two, so, Psalm 42 through 72. And then we get to book three. Uh, this kind of talks a lot about Israel's uh, rebellion and exile. And so uh, when we're reading a psalm, it's typically either a lament or a praise. A lament or a praise. And I would uh, suggest that Psalm 75 fits more of the lament. And books four, just to conclude, is books 90 through 145. And, excuse me, yeah, 90 through 106. Book five is 107 through 145. With the conclusion, and this is really interesting, is books 146 through 150. And each one of those began with hallelujah, which is a, a command to praise Yahweh, a praise that name which we can't utter, Yah, right? So hallelujah. And so getting back to Psalm 75 and being a lament. A lament, it, it implies that there's confusion or there's, there's pain or there's anguish, right? And, you know, why would a believer, why would a, uh, the people of God, why would they lament? They have God, right? Well, it's because they live in a sinful world. In this sinful world, Things happen, and a lot of times they cause us to, to see it and go, okay, God's good, but this is happening, right? How can the two be true at the same time? And, and we lament, right? Uh, but also there's praise, and just to, just to kind of finish that, praise implies joy and celebration, thanksgiving. Well, look, it is the week of thanksgiving, right? So you would think that, you know, in, if you're going to preach a psalm, on the week of Thanksgiving, you would not preach a lament. <laughs> but uh, I'm a little bit of a maverick at times, so I, I didn't do that. Um, so the author of Psalm 75 here we see is, is titled as Asaph. Now, whether or not that's an individual person or a title, I can't really tell you. Um, we know that the, I don't know if I can pronounce this right, Asaphites, it was a, it was a position in the temple where they, worshiped they the, there was an office uh, title that was held and and they led the worship of the temple uh, specifically or uh, particularly in in song and the psalms obviously played a big role in that and and they apparently wrote them okay and so that's why this is uh is attributed to asap now asap is believed to have written 12 of the psalms okay you got psalm 50 and then you have a break and then you have psalm 73 through 83 are all attributed to this writer. And that's important because we're going to reference uh, Psalm 73 later on in the message. So with that, now that we kind of have the context of what's going on here and who's writing and the fact that this is more of a lament, uh, we, can, we can go into uh, the verses. So verse 1 begins with, We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your name is near, and we recount your wondrous deeds. Now, 
He begins this with the word we, not I. And that's important because we're going to see later on in the text, it, it does make a shift to I. But this we implies like a, a communal lament, like we together uh, are, are being reminded that we give thanks because your name is near and we recount your wondrous deeds, your wondrous deeds. I love that word wondrous. I want to, I want to like put it in my vocabulary more often. Like I'm used to, I say wonderful, I say marvelous. It's like they took those two words and put them together and it's wondrous. Uh, but God's deeds are wondrous. And it is important for us as believers, especially when we're going through hardship and difficulty, to look back and recount the way he has worked mightily in our life. And for the believer, the most obvious is the fact that he worked out this miracle called saving you a sinner, right? By imputing and imparting his life and righteousness in you. And we are to recount and remember. That makes gathering on Sundays pretty important. It makes it pretty purposeful because we do that through song. We do that through the reading of the word. We do that through remembering through communion. But we as his people are to recount and remember his wondrous deeds. And I don't think that just means our Sunday school Bible stories. I think that also means in the way that he has worked in your life. Has he ever brought you through some difficulty, whether it be relationally or financially or physically, and and remember how he has worked mightily in your life? But all that uh, doesn't compare to the fact that he has worked his life into the believer, and we are to always remember that and recount it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 reminds us that we are to rejoice always, pray without season, ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Um, you know, it doesn't take a theologian to realize that when he says everything, he means everything. It doesn't label it good or bad. It really doesn't. In all things we are to give thanks. All things. So as we move into this season of thankfulness right and we're we're amongst and around people that might not want to may not cause us to give thanks we're to thank god because guess who picked who your mom and dad is not you god picked who your parents are guess who picked who your brother and sister is not you god did he's pretty good at being in control and doing things for his own will and his own purpose and own glory we may not understand it, but it's God who decided it. And I think that falls into everything. We give thanks, right? So this week, as you're amongst the people that you're going to be, you know, sharing turkey with and dressing with, give thanks. And it really just changes the way in which that person might experience you. And by some miracle, they might experience Christ. And we start to understand the purpose of giving thanks, that we may recount his wondrous deeds and someone may catch a glimpse of Christ's life in the believer. So it is imperative that we do that. It's imperative because when we recount the, the ways that God has shown up and worked in our lives, that begins with remembering Christ's work on the cross. And it speaks to why regularly we gather on Sundays. So it's really important that we remember. I mentioned that the psalmist here wrote Psalm 73 as well as Psalm 75, and he used some similar language. He says in Psalm 73, verse 28, For me it is good to be near to God. For me, for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Very similar language. Very similar language. 
So moving on to verse 2. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. So we see that the change in that Asaph was saying we, and now he's quoting the Lord, and he's saying I. I set the time. And as I read this, it, 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 it occurs to me that, you know, the, the people of God are like, when are you going to judge these wicked people? When are you going to bring about their end? It seems like that needs to happen now. When are you going to be a good judge, so to speak? And God says, it's for me to decide. I will set the time, and I will judge with equity. And just to make sure we all understand that word, it means with fairness. With fairness. I don't know about you, and I don't know if you've looked over the uh, account of your own life and your own deeds and your own thoughts and your own heart and motive. But it's a pretty scary thing to think about God judging with equity, with fairness. Have you always been the best neighbor, the best sibling, the best spouse, the best kid? No, no, we're all sinners. We all need grace. So if God's going to be dealing with equity, that's pretty scary. And if I was the people of Israel, I would have been kind of glad that he has kind of stayed his hand for a little bit. Because we know, we, we know, we get the benefit of looking back where they were looking forward. We know that God's wrath was poured out. And when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. And uh, that language is interesting to me because it, to me it implies that the earth is going to shake, right? In just about any institution, any relationship, anything you've kind of put any trust in, it shakes, right? Who's putting all their trust into the government right now? Anybody? No. It shakes. In your, in your spouse? No. They, they can't even be trusted 100% of the time. In yourself? No. The foundations of these, other, these uh, areas, they shake, but it's not without purpose. Because it's God who upholds the foundations. At the end of the day, it's he who holds it. And he's allowing it to shake. He's allowing those foundations to give way a little bit. It's rigged. It's rigged. Why is it rigged? Because he doesn't want you putting your trust in it. That's not where your trust belongs. And so it's important to, to know that God is in control. He is in control. He'll judge at his appointed time, and he upholds the foundations. But he is he's specifically talking here now about the wicked, okay? And uh, to, to, to understand Psalm 75, I've mentioned now for the third time Psalm 73, I'd like to read verses 1 through 14 together, okay? Verses 1 through 14. Truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. And this matches Psalm 75, right? He starts out with this positive, right? Surely surely God's good to Israel. Uh, I'm going to say something in a minute that is a little bit contradictory to this, but surely he's good. That's the hope, right? To those who are pure of heart. But as for me, my feet have almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Those foundations begin to move, right? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I saw the success that the wicked was having. Verse 4. 
for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and slick. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell with fat through, excuse me, their eyes swell out through, through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. That language there, it's very interesting. Their tongue struts through the earth. Like they're, they're, uh, they have their own message that they're proclaiming and they're pushing it and, 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 and they're boastfully you know, claiming whatever they're claiming. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. If God's, God's good, but why are the wicked prospering? This is that, that question that I believe he's really getting to uh, God answering here in Psalm 75. So he goes on to say in verse 4, back in, back in chapter 75, verse 4, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift your horn on high who speak with haughty neck. So you get this, this imagery, and, and I believe it's the King James Version. It says, don't toot your own horn. Don't toot your own horn. Anybody here guilty of that? Bragging on themselves? Like, like it's football season. We like to brag on our fantasy football team. Like, we have any role in that at all. <laughs> but we love to toot our own horn because we're prideful and sinful. Ugh. But we do it. We do it. And I want to read something from C.S. Lewis. I think that... Uh, Lewis just has one of, the, one of the best writings on the topic of pride. Uh, just, and I think there's levels of understanding of pride, like there's elementary school level, middle school, high school, college, and then a master's degree. Uh, and so I'm not saying that this is like the full master's degree study on the, on the issue of pride, but I think it's a really good place to start. Um, in, in the book Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis, in more of an apologetic way than a theological way, uh, discusses what he calls the great sin. And I'm going to read it to you because I think it's just that good. Uh, Lewis says, Now come to that part in, of Christian morals where they m- differ most sharply from all other morals. The, the, there is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are, the, that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. But I do not think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse themselves of this vice. At the same time, I very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And, there, and the more we have of it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. What vice am I talking about? I'm talking about pride or self-conceit. That haughtiness, that stiff-neckedness, right? That tooting of your own horn. 
The virtue opposite to it in the Christian morals is called humility. You may remember, and he's, he's referencing a previous chapter, he said, when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you at the center of Christian morals that did not lie, to, lie in the purity of sexuality. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. It is complete anti-God state of mind. It's a complete anti-God state of mind. So he mentions this how the devil became the devil. Well, if you remember... Lucifer said, I will ascend above the throne of the Most High. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't need him. I don't need God, right? What was the lie that he said in the garden? Don't you want to be like God and know good and evil? Because if you know good and evil, you're not going to need him. You're going to be like him, right? So this, this sin, it's, it's kind of that, uh, I, think he, I think Lewis goes on to say, you might be looking for the cure of the cold and uh, the whole time you eat up with cancer, the cancer of pride. Like, it is, it is very wicked. And he goes on to say, the Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among a, dr- among a drunkard. You may find that in, in, among unchaste people. But pride always means enmity and enmity, and not only enmity between man and man, but enmity between God. In God, and this is, this is so important, in God you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. In every respect, God is immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see anything that is above you. And lastly, Lewis gives a test so that you can know whether or not you are prideful. And he says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And it's a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, if you think you are not prideful, that means you are very prideful indeed. Hmm, that stings. That stings, right? And so we need to understand that pride is a significant sin. It is significant that it is at the core and at the root of all other sins because it says, I don't need God. I don't need God. So God, again, to just uh, repeat verses 4 and 5, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And I say to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. Why? For not from the east nor from the west nor from the wilderness comes the lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the the sermon that this was the verse that gave me tremendous comfort and that I was was kind of, I was misinterpreting it to some degree because he is clearly talking about the prosperity that the wicked enjoy, right? 
when they get lifted up, it's God who's lifting them up. And when they get set down, it is God who sets them down. God will judge. They can't brag at all. Whatever thing that's going on great in their world right now isn't because of their doing. It's because he allowed it. It's because it's his doing, right? Well, the way I had read this verse all these years is like, you know what? Whether I'm lifted up or whether I'm set down, it's the Lord doing it. So I can go into all these rooms, all these job interviews, all these scenarios and situations, and that the promotion that would come from it, the lifting up that would come, come out of it would be from God. Now, I would say that's not a miss application of God's character and his sovereignty I actually think it's very correct and I think it's it's very helpful to to know that no matter what situation and circumstance no matter which room you find yourself in that it's the Lord who's going to cause anything good to happen or anything bad to happen in the sense that he allows it right and so whether you're promoted or set down God's working out his plan for his glory I don't think that's a misapplication but it was a misinterpretation of the text. And it's important to understand that when we see good things happening to those who are clearly wicked, it's because God is allowing it for his own glory. And at an appointed time, he will judge. And so we get into verses uh, 8. Let's go to verse 8. For the hand of the Lord, there is a cup. With foaming wine and well mixed, he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain down its dregs. And we've already talked about uh, the wicked here, right? We've referenced them and their behavior in 73. But the reality is, is we're all guilty, right? We're all born into sin. There's not a man, woman, or child that's here who was never not counted among the wicked, those that enmity with God. And so, this judgment that's going to be poured out, it's important to understand that that was poured out on Christ. When Christ said, Lord, if at all possible, let this cup pass. Not my will be done, but your will be done. He, he was referencing this cup. It's foamed, it's mixed, it's ready to go. And it was stayed here, because it was poured out on Christ. It was poured out on Christ. So what qualifies us to be righteous? Is it because we're humble enough? We're kind enough and we're good enough? No. That doesn't qualify us. The only thing that qualifies us is Christ. That's it. Nothing else. If, if you bring to the equation anything that begins with yourself, you're, you're, you're now moving into the realm of pride, the I don't need God, the anti-God state of mind. No. Who your family is, what your religious activities are, what church you go to, what it is you, you think you believe, none of that qualifies you. Christ can only qualify you. And, and why does Christ qualify us? Well, for us to be lifted up, he had to come down. He had to come down. Philippians says that he emptied himself. He humbled himself and became a babe. And then he lived the, this life, this life that, that we're created to live, but we can't live because of sin. He then lived sinlessly and perfectly. 
and thereby qualifying himself to be the ultimate atonement, to be the ultimate sacrifice. And what does Scripture say? Unless he's lifted up and draws men to himself, we can't be saved. Like the serpent was lifted up in Exodus. And Christ was lifted up. He was lifted up high on the cross. And he took on him the wrath of God, that foaming cup that was, we were guaranteed to have to drink down its dregs. He drank it down on our behalf. And he did that so that we might be qualified, not on the basis of our good deeds, but on the basis of his wondrous work on the cross. And that wondrous work on the cross was the kingdom of God coming to us. The kingdom of God coming to us and so that we might be saved. Not just to get out of hell and into heaven, but so Christ could get in you and in me. Not to get us out of hell and into heaven so that God could impute his righteousness, impute the life of Christ in you and me. And what does that mean? Well, that means that you were not just saved so that you could have uh, immediately go straight to heaven, right? That's not the point. We were, we were saved and we remain here so that he may live his life through us. That he may reveal himself to others. Uh, and you guys hear me say this, I'll say it again, as the Apostle Paul said. The reason I remain is not for my sake, but for your sake. Because for me, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's a lot better than hanging out with you guys. But for your sake I remain. Well, let me tell you, the reason you remain after receiving uh, not only saving faith but the life of Christ is for others. It's for others. Can you do that with a stiff neck? Can you do that in haughty pride? No. No, you can't. It's impossible. There's a scary verse in James where, where God says he opposes the proud. And gives grace to the wicked. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> I, thought all, I, thought, I thought you were okay with forgiving all sin, right? And he is. And there's grace. But the, the idea is there that we don't want the grace. We don't need it. We're prideful. We don't need God. That's the opposition. So what does the next verse say? Draw near to God because you need him. And he will draw near to you. And so... As we're going through life and, and we experience these difficulties, right? Whether it be difficulty financially, whether it be difficulty relationally, physically. We are to remember that God is working all of this out. Not so that we can have this prosperous life here on this earth. But that he might squeeze us and pour himself out into others. And in doing so, we have this promise. This promise in, uh, that, that the people of God looked to in Psalm 75, where they said, let me get to this verse here. Oh, there it is at the end of my notes. Um, well, let me find it here, guys. Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm probably looking right at it, and I can't see it. Where he says, but as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And all the horns of the wicked will be cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lift up, lifted up. 
our, anything that we have that we can look to and boast is in Christ. 1 Corinthians says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That describes all of us here. But God has chose what the world, excuse me, God has chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to, thi- to, bring to no- nothing things that are. Why? Why has he done this? Why has God used that which the world would not? Why did he use a babe in a manger? Hmm? He did it so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29. And because of him, Christ Jesus, because you are in him, who became the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the only horn we have to lift is Christ. The only boasting we can do, the only name that we can proclaim, the only horn that we the only trumpet we can sound is christ and the apostle paul goes on in first corinthians chapter 2 verse 2 he says for i determined to know nothing else among you except christ and him crucified i don't want to hear anything else if it does, if it's not christ and him crucified it doesn't matter why you're here what you're doing what your plans are the reason you're going to go to work tomorrow or go to school it doesn't matter if that's not at the core of the why it doesn't matter. If what you bring to the table of why, what makes you a Christian, if it's not Christ and Him crucified, it doesn't matter. I literally determined to know nothing else among you except Christ and Him crucified because in Him only can we boast. So we're so thankful. We're so thankful that we can draw near to Him because He has drawn near to us. We are so thankful that we can trust that He will not only has lifted up Christ in us, but that we will be with him for eternity in the end. So Psalms 148, we may, I mentioned to you that uh, between Psalm 146 and Psalm 150 is the conclusion, in a sense, of the book of Psalms. And Psalms 148, verses uh, 14 says, let them, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. That's Christ. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near him. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, Lord. We're so thankful that the wondrous work has been completed. It is finished in Christ and Christ alone. And so it's to him that we look. It's his name that we praise. It's in Him that we trust to not only save us out of hell and into heaven, but to give us life abundantly, to make us new. Lord, that uh, no matter what circumstance or situation we're in, that you have a plan, that you're working it out. And whether we be lifted up or sat down, that we can trust that we belong to you and that you always, always, always save your people. Father, we thank you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.